0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley. One of my pet peeves is not knowing my neighbors. So we've been in this building for about, I don't know, five years. And I've been on staff for about five years. And I don't know the people at Acme Screw, this company that makes screws right next to us. So I decided I'm going to go over there and meet some of these guys. So. I met a couple of the machinists there. One of the guys I'll call his name Jim. He's been there for about 27 years. Really nice guy. he got a fascinating story about coming from Eastern Europe and immigrating here um, and starting a new life with his family, facing a lot of uh, political op- persecution before he came. And so he's telling me a story, and then I told him, I'm one of the pastors here, and he blurts out this question. He says, so, Pastor, i got a question for you. Why would someone... Try to get someone else to change their religion. And I said, wow, that's a big question. I've only known you 10 minutes. I don't really have a good answer right now. And then, but he said, he kept going. He said, let me tell you this story. I was out fishing in the river one day, and I'm just having a good time fishing. There's this other guy fishing in the river. And he's trying to talk to me about religion, and he's trying to get me to switch to his religion. He said, why would somebody do that? I was so upset. I went home and I talked to my wife about it. And she said, Jim, you got to calm down. It's okay. But I was still so upset. He said, Pastor, that is the lowest thing another human being could do to anybody is try to get them to change religion. I thought it was a really good question. I'm going to try to answer that question today. I'm going to try based on our first scripture passage. It's a really good question because I think even people that are followers of Jesus and committed to his way of life, We feel, we kind of know what we're supposed to believe and, and, and what we're supposed to think. Like, for instance, in all four Gospels in the New Testament, it ends basically the way the Gospel of Mark ends, where it says, go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. We're supposed to preach everywhere, to everyone, even to animals, apparently, and to trees. We're supposed to preach the Gospel to all creation. Go everywhere, all nations. So we know that's what we're supposed to do, but then we feel this tug inside of us that basically says, yeah, but evangelism, which I'll define what that means in a few minutes, it just seems off. It feels weird. It feels awkward. It feels socially inappropriate. Hello, middle school retreatants that have just returned from your retreat and are now sitting in the front pew. Try to be on time next time. Okay, I'm no, just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. So glad you're here. <laughs> we'll just take a minute. Just have your seats. So, okay. Nobody look at them. Now look at me. Look back at me now. So, <clears throat> so we have what I would call excellent objections to the idea of evangelism. Because if we're honest. They kind of feel like they make sense I'm going to talk about some of those excellent objections and then I'm going to give you the reason the one reason that rules all the objections one to rule them all the reason of why we should share our faith so Acts chapter 9 we meet the first reading that you heard from Acts of the Apostles, we meet this guy named Ananias. And Ananias is a great example for us because, as far as we know, he's not not a bishop, he's not a priest, he's not a pastor, he's not on church staff. He's just an ordinary Christian who, out of the blue, gets called by Jesus to do something he doesn't want to do, which is to share the gospel with a guy named Saul. And Saul is a troublemaker. He is a hothead, and he's got some issues. So we read, at the very beginning, Of chapter 9 verse 1 Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest so Saul is on a mission he's not on a spiritual quest he is spiritually set he's spiritually satisfied he is spiritually convinced he's committed he's dedicated he's sincere he sincerely believes what he believes And in verse 3, we see that he's on his way to the city of Damascus. There's a small church in Damascus at this point. And Saul is on his way there. And we read in verse 3 that as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's the voice of Jesus that just overwhelms him and overpowers him. Now, I've heard it said that Jesus always acts like a perfect gentleman. I've heard preachers say that before. They're wrong. That's not true. He's always gentle, but the ways he works in his life are not always like an English butler. (laughs) Here, he's like a middle linebacker tackling the quarterback, if you're familiar with football. This is not a gentleman. So Saul goes into Damascus. He was going in there with papers to persecute Christians. He comes in a very broken man. He can't see. He can't eat. It's like he's like a guy that's lived through an earthquake. But this is a Jesus quake. And it's kind of messed him up at first. Now, we're going to see here he does not accept Jesus. He does not decide for Jesus. Jesus draws him to himself, largely against his will. But in the end, it does involve Saul's will. Bishop Stewart said last week, if you are here, he said, Jesus is always the first inviter. We're in, like, this chain with a lot of people involved in the process. But Jesus is always the initiator. He's always the first inviter. So as I was reading this story this week, A question popped into my brain, as it often does. I wanted to ask God something. I always think when I read the Bible, it's like, I want to ask God, I want to ask you a question. So the question was this. Since you're such a good inviter, you're so good at this, and you're always doing it. And look at Saul. You brought him like 99% of the way there. Why don't you just finish the job all by yourself? Why do you need us? Instead, he does something really surprising and inefficient. He says, hey, I got this guy in Damascus, he believes in me, his name's Ananias, he's not doing much, I'll just, boom, I'll just lay it on his heart that he's going to be part of the process of bringing Saul to me. He's going to be part of that last 1%. So evangelism, here's the definition of evangelism. It's Jesus and me, it's Jesus and you, it's Jesus and his whole church, which I'll talk about next week, joining Jesus in what he's already doing. To invite people to Himself. So it involves inviting and wooing and compelling and persuading and praying and loving and conversing and and living such lives of uh, compelling, intriguing, loving lives that people would be drawn to Him. And let me just say, if you think it's weird, if we think it's uncomfortable, just think of it this way. How do you learn how to do anything in life? How did you learn how to walk? How did you learn how to write a sentence or your name? How did you learn how to drive a car? How did you learn your profession? How did you learn a golf swing or uh, how to play an instrument? I bet you learned it from other people. We seldom learn anything all by ourselves. You say, well, yeah, I googled it and I watched YouTubes. Well, who put the YouTubes up there? That still involved other people. This is how we learn anything in life. This is how we grow. This is how I still meet the Lord so often. I have people preach the good news to me over and over again. That's what we're all doing here. Nobody's excluded from this. Jesus does almost all the work, but he invites us into the process. And even that 1%... Is Jesus working in us and through us? So we're not even alone on that 1%. It's like what happened on May 28, 1990. It was a great day in Chicago bull, basketball, professional basketball history. It was the day that a guy named Michael Jordan and a second-string player named Stacey King combined together to score 70 points. Michael Jordan scored his career-high 69 points. Stacy King added one, but Stacy King for the rest of his life could go. Hey, remember that day when me and MJ We scored 70 points. That was a great day. I participated in that That's kind of like evangelism Jesus is putting in his 69 points and then he's helping us put in the little one point But we get to play with Jesus. Isn't that great? And that's what he wants from Ananias so in verse 10 We read, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Now let me just pause, because that little phrase, Here I am, Lord, is actually a little phrase that's found in very important places in the Old Testament, where God calls somebody to a very important work, a very important task, a prophet, an evangelist of the Old Testament. And that phrase basically means, I'm all in, Lord. I'll do anything for you. I will join a res group. I will serve res kids, res youth. I will go on a middle school retreat. I will do anything for you, Lord. And so the Lord says, I'm so glad you said that, Ananias, because I got this guy named Saul He's a bit of a troublemaker right now. He's a bit of a rascal, but i got some great plans for him, and I've added my 69 points, and I want you to go to him. I want you to put that last point in. And I imagine a long pause and Ananias saying, ha ha, Lord, did I say anything? I meant many things for you. I will do many things for you, but not that. Actually, here's what he actually said. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He has what I would call an excellent objection. We all have these excellent objections that we, deep down, no matter how good of a Christian we think we are or say we are or want to be, we have them. I have within me what I would call my believing Matt, who stands over here, and my skeptical Matt, who stands over here. They often get into conversations. They might have conversations that go something like this, you know, I just think evangelism is wrong. It is wrong to try to convert somebody. It is narrow-minded. It is..." Bigoted. It is wrong to make exclusive truth claims. Believing Matt, in my better moments, might say to skeptical Matt, wait a minute skeptical Matt, just calm down now. You're saying it is wrong to make exclusive truth claims. What are you doing? You're making an exclusive truth claim about not having exclusive truth claims. You are saying that despite all the religions in the world and all of them teach and all religions have an aspect of exclusivity, none of them don't, you're saying that they're all wrong and I know the truth. Isn't that sort of exclusive? Skeptical Matt might say, "Hmm, I'm not convinced because I'm never really fully convinced. That's why I'm skeptical Matt. You know another reason? Here's one more personal. I'm unqualified. Who am I to go and talk to somebody else about their spiritual journey? I got my own problems. I got my own baggage. I got my own sins. I got my own failures from the past. Believing, Matt, would say, skeptical, Matt, what is wrong with you? That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. He didn't die for perfect people. He ate with sinners. And and doesn't, doesn't it say in the Bible, doesn't Jesus say, my power is made perfect in human weakness? We have the treasure of Jesus in jars of clay? He loves working through our perfect weakness. You're not pretending to be better than anybody. And if you are, you're doing it wrong. You're doing evangelism all wrong. You just come, as Father Brett said last week, as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Skeptical, Matt says, whatever. Okay, i got another one. It's risky. People might misunderstand me. They might think I'm arrogant, pompous, a jerk, a hater. Believing Matt says, yeah. What's your point? Did Jesus ever promise a risk-free life? Look at what he promised the apostle Paul. He said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You're not exactly suffering a lot in this country. For being a Christian, it's not really a high price to pay. As Father Canon Stephen loves to say, courage is feeling afraid and yet doing the right thing anyway, with trust in the Lord Jesus. You need some courage. moment, Matt might say, "Well, it's unnecessary. Why don't I just live a good life?" I'd just be a nice person. I just I won't say anything about, I won't use the J word. I'll maybe talk about spirituality, church, but I'm not going to say the J word because that might turn people off. Believing Matt says, yeah, but everybody needs an interpretive guide. You needed an interpretive guide to come to me. You still need interpretive guides to explain, to expound, to preach the gospel to you. Let me tell you a story Skeptical Matt and the rest of you since I'm breaking out of the two mats now So let me tell you a story. This is actually something I read in the Washington Post this last week I don't know if you read this it was just a really moving article about former president Ronald Reagan And I'm going to use Ronald Reagan in a positive light and just so you know I'm not making a political statement I'm not making that I agree with all of his policies or economics or policies or anything like that So with that qualification, let me go into this very positive example of Ronald Reagan So on August 7th, 1862, he wrote in his presidential diary, he said, again at the White House, more of Saturdays, work plus a long letter I have to write. Health is failing, his health, this man's health is failing badly. He was writing a letter to his father-in-law, Loyal Davis, who was a brilliant pioneering neurosurgeon who was on his deathbed in the hospital. And uh, Loyal Davis was not a believer. He was actually a committed atheist. His daughter, Nancy Reagan, uh, at the time her last name was Davis, and him were talking to him about spiritual things. So he started the letter, and he said, Dear Loyal, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write you ever since we last talked. Now the strain you are under, and believe with all the heart, my heart that there is help for you. And you can go online and read this letter, but it is a beautiful, poignant, moving, personal letter about Ronald Reagan's faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his desire and hope and invitation that Loyal Davis would come to believe as well. Let me read from the article in the Washington Post, which, by the way, was not as far as I know, this article was not written by a Christian or not written by a believer. Um, she went on to say, did the letter have any impact? Nancy Reagan, who was with Loyal Davis when he died and who saved the letter, would later claim that her father did turn to God at the end of his life. Two days before his death, on August 19th, 1982, Davis sought out a hospital chaplain and with, prayed with him. The uh, author says, was a deathbed conversion? That may have been a daughter's wish, wishful thinking, however, one thing is certain. And then she went on to talk about the sincerity of Ronald Reagan's faith because this nobody knew about this letter. It was not included in the official presidential diary, it was a separate letter, something that he kept private and personal. And it's just come out recently. We all need a guide to help us. I'll give you one more objection. And I want us to face these because if you're a Christian, you won't. You won't share your faith if you're stuck in one of these objections. You'll be stuck. You have to get beyond these. We have to get beyond these. The last one is simply this. It won't work. It won't succeed. What are the statistical probabilities of somebody really believing all this stuff? Believing Matt? I mean, it's kind of weird. There's some kind of weird stuff we believe. What are the odds of that? And believing Matt says, yeah. It's statistically improbable. But did you hear our gospel reading? With man, something might be impossible. With God, all things are possible. Do you remember when we were in high school skeptical, Matt? Yes. Those were the best days of my life. (laughs) Now look at us. Look at you. (laughs) You don't look so skeptical anymore. Oh, I'm still skeptical. I still have these conversations. But do you remember when Mark Ritchie came up to us and said, you were playing Bumper Pool, and he came up to us and said, he told us about Jesus, he started talking about Jesus, and you remember what we said, skeptical Matt? We said, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. And I literally went home and said to somebody, one of my siblings, If I believe that, it would ruin my life. And it has. (laughs) In the best way possible. I was statistically improbable. A lot of us were statistically improbable. God doesn't go by statistics. You never know when God is going to break in and break through into somebody's life. If you're a believer this morning, I want to encourage you to look at these. What is your objection? What is it? Because I, like I said, if we don't face these, then we're going to be stuck. So Jesus listens to Ananias' excellent objection with compassion, but then the compassion turns into commission. So in verse 15, he says, "Go, go. And he says, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Who would have thought Saul become Paul, become the evangelist for Christianity? Who would have thought that? Here is the reason that rules them all. It's simply this. God just puts people on your heart. God puts people on your heart. God's put me on people's heart. God puts people on your heart. And then you just obey Jesus and you go. And you love people. You have conversations. That's all it is. And look again. Look at how Jesus wants Ananias to look at Saul. He says, he is my chosen instrument. I think back there in high school, Mark Ritchie looked at me and thought, that Matt Woodley who thinks this is all so stupid, he might be God's chosen instrument. So I'm just gonna go and talk to him. How would your life be different if, no matter where you went, you're, so you're at your work, you're, you're at your job, you're, you're in your neighborhood, you're with your friends, you're with your family, you're posting on social media with a friend that has some profound disagreements with you, and you hear in the back of your mind Jesus saying, go this person might be my chosen instrument. You don't know. Just go. How would that change the way you look at people? Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to look at the world? Just think that everybody, possibly, could have this supernatural calling upon their life that's beautiful and deep and rich and good. Wouldn't that be a great way to look at the people around you? So Ananias is reluctant, he's scared, he's uninspired, but he goes. And then the scales fall off of Saul's eyes at the end of this story, verse 18, and and he regains his sight. Now I think that's the moment when it just became real for Saul, and he's met Jesus, and he starts his new life. And something happens to him that self-help, religion, trying hard to be a nice person, Something happens way beyond all of that. He's born again by the Spirit of Jesus. You know, I live in uh, East Aurora, where about half of my neighborhood is Latino. And I have this young guy that's a, uh, he's from Mexico. He lives across the street with his wife and um, a couple kids. They both work really hard, great neighbors, really love them a lot. He was telling me one day about some things from his past that were Um, Not good. Had a pretty rough life. Done some pretty rough things. And so he was telling me about this, and I was thinking, wow, I should tell him about the Lord sometime. He needs to meet the Lord Jesus and have a new life. A few weeks later, the guy shows up on my doorstep. He's got a soccer ball. And the soccer ball has all these different colors on it. And so he's explaining to me in his... um, sort of limited English, he's explaining to me, oh, the black part of the soccer ball represents our sin, that we've sinned against God. And the red part is that Jesus died for our sin. And the white part is he can make us pure as snow. And the yellow part, the gold part, is we can go to heaven to live with him forever. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I thought I was gonna witness to you. And so I try to explain to him, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. And he's looking at me like, really? <laughs> How come you never came over and talked to me, you know? Why do I got to initiate this? I initiate this. The young Latino guy that just, uh, you know, was with the broken English. That's sort of what was on the look on his face. That's what I was assuming. But, you know, it, it really touched me. It really did, not, not like in a condescending kind of way, but it's just like this young guy, he's got a lot of courage. He's got a lot of nerve. He's got a lot of, as we would say on Long Island, hutzpah. That's gutsy. hutzpah. Who's from Long Island? Who's, from, who's Yiddish here? Okay. He's got chutzpah, that was, and he's got a lot of love. He, like, really cared about me. I felt like this guy really cares about me. Let me ask you this, you just think about your life. Who has the Lord laid on your heart? See, when you meet Jesus, you, you start to carry people in your heart. You start to care about people in a whole new way. That was the first thing I noticed when Mark Ritchie shared with me, and then when I eventually decided to commit my life to Christ, the first thing I noticed is I just had a different kind of love for people. Still very flawed, very imperfect, very selfish but it was like going to a new level because I knew it wasn't from me. So who has the Lord laid on your heart? And maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, yeah, you know, I'm more like Saul. I'm more like the 1%. I'm more like the unlikely candidate for conversion. Well, I would just say, just, just keep coming, just keep learning, keep asking questions, keep being here because God may have something planned for you that's beyond your wildest imagination. So remember that one word, that one reason that rules all our objections. Go. For this man is, or might be, or could be, my chosen instrument. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, Check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.